Just a warning to our listeners today, TV movies of the 70s and 80s are rife with salacious and traumatizing topics. From incest and rape to psychopathic killers hiding in your barn, we don't mean to make fun, but sometimes it's so outrageous you just have to laugh. So if you're triggered by any of these topics or people making light of them, you may want to skip today's episode and join us again next week. Thank you. The reason this made an impression on me and is in my most memorable list is simple. It's Jan Brady turns to prostitution. That's it. (laughs) The end. Totally. (laughs) End of story. Full stop. Right. Moving on. Jan Brady is a booker. Like, what? (laughs) What is right? Hello world, it's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who paid four cents for milk to wash down that ding-dong in their Holly Hobby lunchbox. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll be saving the quote-unquote films created for viewing from your Nagahide couch in a countdown of the 10 most memorable made-for-TV movies of the Gen X era. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Welcome to our countdown of the 10 most memorable made-for-TV movies of the Gen X era, as determined by us and the votes of our followers. Last week, we dug deep on all the TV movies that popped up on our screens in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and this week, we're counting down the very best, or more accurately, the most memorable. We very specifically use the word memorable for this countdown, not best, because good can mean so many things when we're talking about this genre. It could mean so bad it's good. It could mean so bad we'll never forget it. And here we are 40 years later talking about it. So we're really looking for the movies that have stuck with us all this time. So here's how we scientifically determined the positioning of each of these movies. Carolyn and Michelle and I each made our own personal top 10 lists of movies that made an impact on us. And those movies were weighted numerically so that they each got a score. We added to that score any mentions that that movie got by our followers when we asked them what their most memorable movies were. And when we get to the end, the world will know which made-for-TV movie reigns supreme in the Pop Culture Preservation Society. But before we begin, I just want to mention our runners-up, the ones that got a lot of points but just barely missed the top 10. I'm surprising you guys with this one. Mm -hmm. Um, So you might remember, these are the movies that got tons and tons of votes and even appeared on on our top 10 list too, um, but they just didn't make it into the top 10. So the you math might remember, just didn't work out, right? The, the you had math, to do so much math. Math. My math Gosh. teacher would be so happy because there was a time when she had to cut my math worksheet in half because I just couldn't keep up. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm doing it, Mrs. Morgan. I'm doing it. So um, you might remember the movie Sybil. Mm-hmm. From 1976, with its tour de force performance by Sally Field as a woman with 16 different oh personalities that grew out of being abused as a child by her mother, who was some kind of religious extremist 
who sexual this you guys I just can't even who sexually violated her own daughter in the name of religious ritual or something like that. Yeah, and isn't that based on a true story, right? Oh God, I bet it is. I think it I, is. I bet it is because we had the book. My mom had the book too. I can still see the yeah, cover. Yeah, we had the book, and mm-hmm. I I flipped through it, and I remember reading those awful scenes mm-hmm. of of the way her mother treated her in the beginning. It was awful. Carolyn was all about finding the good parts. In a I yeah. know, but that was really good. But yeah, I'm a good flipper through, uh-huh. skimmer. Yeah, Ugh, that was a I tough know. one. Mm-hmm. And I was way too young to watch that, but it didn't matter in those days because everybody talked about it. And so you oh, got yeah. everything you needed on the playground without even watching it. I feel like I watched it though. I don't, I don't, yeah. I'd have to watch it again to see if anything's um, sticking with me, but maybe I've just um, blocked it. And I think mm-hmm. it was maybe like a two-parter even movie. I think it was on more oh, than possible. one night. I mean, 16 mm-hmm. personalities. Come on. You have to give them their You dues. can't do that in they two can't hours. <laughs> and really 90 minutes when you take right. your ads or whatever. But um, I remember not being able to wrap my head around, still kind of can't, how that could happen. And how like one personality didn't remember like what the other one had said or done. And they were different <laughs> ages and mm-hmm. different They had different voices. voices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, another one that did not make our top 10, but just barely missed it, was the 1979 version of The Miracle Worker, mm-hmm. starring Melissa Gilbert as Helen mm-hmm. Keller and Patty Duke as Annie Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And this was a big deal because it was a remake of a 1962 movie that starred Patty Duke <laughs> as Helen Keller. Right. For which, did she win an Oscar for that? I think so. I, I think she did. Something. I think she won she, something. She was very young. And yeah, was yeah. Like one of the youngest winners. And yeah. In Melissa Gilbert's book called Prairie Tales, she talks a lot about the making of that movie and just how, just how wonderful Patty Duke was to her in that. You know, she was just a young teen herself when she was making Mm it. And, um, yeah, I uh, watched about, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes of it a week or so ago. And man, she throws herself into that role. Melissa Gilbert. Yeah. She does. That is not, Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're like expecting to see Laura Ingalls. It yeah. is not. She's yeah. and so she was coached a lot, I think, by Patty Duke to, you know, remember how um how she was remembering how she played the role. Oh, that was a movie. There's a, a string of movies, a collection of movies that my mom made me watch. Like we're going to watch X. And that was one of them. And I think mm-hmm. this one, sometimes she does it for um for educational reasons. You need to learn about this topic or you need to learn about this person. And I think this one was a memory for her because she remembered the Patty Duke movie and she wanted us to watch it together. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it was a big deal because I was, it's weird to say I'm a fan of Helen Keller. I don't know if that's... (laughs) No, same. But same. I was fascinated by I was fascinated. (laughs) Okay. So The Burning Bed starring Farrah Fawcett, we talked about that last week as being a really important movie about domestic abuse and was one of those movies where we're like, oh my God, Jill Monroe from Charlie's Angels is starring in this made-for-TV movie, and it was a really important movie. Okay, so now, (laughs) here we go, on with our countdown. In the number 10 spot is Carolyn. In the number 10 spot, and I can't believe it, we have One of My Wives is Missing. (laughs) Don't laugh. (laughs) Talk about memorable. I think I think about this movie probably three or four times a month. This is a 1976 movie. It aired on ABC and it starred Jack Klugman, Elizabeth Ashley, and kind of a classic 70s actor, James Franciscus. And you guys, Mm -hmm. it has everything in it. It's got humor. It's got mystery. It's got murder. And I thought the plot was so 
clever. As you can tell from the title, there's a main character, James Franciscus. His wife is missing. He doesn't know where she is until his wife appears. Or does she? A woman comes and claims that she is his wife, but he says, no, you're not my wife. And you have to watch it to find out, is it his wife? (laughs) Or is his wife still missing? Right. We don't know. And Jack Klugman is really funny and it's, it's humorous. And I have often thought about reworking that plot a little into a book. I just think it's really clever. And you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And I will put a link to it. It must be good because it's still available to this day. And it's from what? You said 1976? Yes. Okay. And it's supposed to be fun. I mean, there are some really funny one-liners from Jack Klugman in there. So it's it's supposed to have its funny. And I don't think it's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek like the whole movie. I mean, the end freaked me out. I screamed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to tell you the end. You have to watch it. But I screamed. Okay, in the number nine spot, we have one, don't yell at me, of many ties. Because Uh. math is math, and there's nothing I can do when calculations for separate things are exactly the same. (laughs) So just be warned, especially in the seven, eight, and nine (laughs) spots. So the first entry in the number nine spot is the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. That's the whole title. Like, they don't need anything else but that. There's no no twist. There's no drama. It's just called the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Why was this memorable? Because this 1979 TNA Fest starred our beloved Julie McCoy from The Love Boat, a.k.a. Lauren Twees, as a sweet Southern cheerleader hopeful. It also stars Jane Seymour as a reporter going undercover to audition for the team and Burt Convy. I mean, you can't get any more 70s than Burt Convy <laughs> as her editor slash boyfriend sending her out on the job. So the DCC was really having a moment in the late 70s in popular culture at the time, proving to be even more popular than the Dallas Cowboys themselves. For real. I didn't know from football. I didn't even know that they cheered for something. I had no idea. And by 1978, they were so popular, they inspired the porn flick Debbie Does Dallas, which has become one of the most viewed porn films of all time. I never <laughs> Did knew you know that. that. Yes, I know. I mean, I know I Debbie no Does Dallas. I had no idea that it was based on the, on the cheerleaders. Ca- wow. Yeah. And this was a real marvel of cross-promotion because the DCC also starred with Lauren Twee's DCC. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you're in the know. I guess. Um, They were also on the love boat with Lauren Twee's also in 1979. So, and the movie was produced by Aaron Spelling. So he's just like, it's a big family, right? We're all well, and it's the same. Um, a lot of the cheerleaders that had acting and speaking parts on that Love Boat episode, that two-part Love Boat episode, or it was a two-hour, um, yeah. are in the movie have featured speaking roles in the movie as well. I thoroughly this one you can also find on Tubi, and I. Mm-hmm. Thoroughly enjoyed my rewatching of this made-for-TV movie. It was Holy. spectacular. It is. It's worth a rewatch just for the scene where, during the auditions, a man is standing by a, a record player by a turntable, and he invites people up six at a time to show us your best disco moves. He said, calls it a free disco scene. dance. <laughs> free disco. You're gonna dance free disco he, dance. Oh God, it's oh so my funny. God. And it goes on forever because they're only – they're like 100 people and they can only come up six at a time. Mm-hmm. And they're just swinging <laughs> it. And they got the chicken wings and, going and they're throwing their legs in the oh, air and they're just whipping their ponytails around. The dance it's is so, so bad. The dancing oh is God. so bad. And Lauren Tweez is just so cringeworthy. Yes, and, she is. You know, uh-huh. fabulous in yeah. this 
fabulously cringeworthy. Let's say that. There's one scene where they're in the rehearsal studio and they're supposed to do a high kick. Literally her knees bent and she might get it to her waist. She's such a bad dancer. But all of them, I will say though that um, um, Jane Seymour is flawless. Like always. I mean, her dancing isn't good any, any yeah, that's Either, not. But she I don't like chicken wing. It doesn't really matter. The dancing. Like listen, let's just be honest. They weren't. Yeah. They weren't. Um, you know, these girls weren't making the team because of their dancing ability. But her. Oh my God, she's beautiful. It and was just very funny. overt about um, they're not making the team because of their dancing ability. It's all about being pretty. And they, yeah. there's at one point there's a woman who doesn't make the team, and she goes marching up <laughs> to the coach, and she says, "I'm the prettiest girl in this room, and my dancing's not bad either." <laughs> They don't even try to hide it. There's so much about being pretty in the movie. Oh, but you're the prettiest one. No, you're the prettiest one. No, I'm the prettiest one. It's hilarious. Um, The end scene for me is the one that was so memorable because I was so excited for this when I was a kid. I could hardly stand it. And the end scene where Lauren Tweez slash Julie McCoy marches out on the field in her little (laughs) uniform with her pom-poms. Oh, I was just like filled with joy. Mm -hmm. So much joy. Okay, our second movie in the number nine spot is... Can you believe this the is, segue? Oh, um, God, seriously. <laughs> this would be the day after. Wah, wah. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Wah, wah. I mean, oh, my gosh, you guys. This movie still haunts me. And honestly, mm-hmm. especially right now with the yeah. current events of the world. Good so point. if you remember, this movie, it aired on November 20th, 1983, and it depicts the day's preceding and following a nuclear war. It follows the lives of people in Lawrence, Kansas, which is pretty much the geographical center of the United States. It was powerfully impactful, you guys. More than 100 million people and 39 million households watched that initial broadcast. <gasps> it wow. was at, It's actually the highest rated made-for-TV movie of all time. Really? Oh, my yes. God. To this day. That? To this That's day. That's unbelievable. Um, yeah, and even more than a few Super Bowls and stuff. It is that wow. um, that we were much- scared. Yes, mm-hmm. and I n- didn't know this either. In 1987, it was broadcast on Soviet state TV, and the producers insisted that the Russian translation conform uh, conform to the original script. So they had to keep the words just like the original script did, wow. and it was shown in the Soviet Union, which I could not believe. Then I also read that Ronald Reagan watched it a month before the screening. And he wrote in his diary the, the very next day, the movie was very effective and left me greatly depressed and that it changed his mind on the prevailing policy on nuclear war. <gasps> Can you believe that? Whoa. How do we know that? Who read his diary? Well, they well, have to submit the archives it. That's in stuff. the archives. Like, yeah. Oh, the they, have to, they have to turn in their diary. Their diary doesn't get to be private. There's nothing that is private. No, yeah, yeah, I don't true. think anything yeah. has. So I'm sure it's in the Ronald Reagan Library. And mm-hmm. is it Sim- Simi? Simi Valley? Simi Valley. Simi Valley. Mm-hmm. So that's how impactful it was. It changed policy. It mm-hmm. made people um, approach nuclear war and its repercussions in a different way. But perhaps, you guys, the most chilling aspect of the entire movie, at least for me, is the final caption that displays on the screen. And this is what it says. The catastrophic events you have witnessed are, in all likelihood, less severe than the destruction that would actually occur in the event of a full nuclear strike against the United States. That was the end of the movie. 
And then black screen. <laughs> Good yeah. night, everyone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Talk about traumatizing. That me now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, continuing on our war theme, we have the number eight <laughs> spot. The movie, the made-for-TV movie that is in the number eight position, this is where all the ties are clustered. I'm just going to let you know. So this is the first of our number eight movies, okay. is The Summer of My German Soldier, a movie we talked about in our episode about Christy McNichol, which was, does anyone remember what number that was? Um, no, oh, our episode, our Christy yeah. episode? I don't know. We did a whole it. episode on Christy McNichol, and yes. we mm-hmm. just talked about Summer of My German Soldier a little bit. For me, this could be almost my number one movie. I remember it so fondly. I loved it so much. I read the book. I love Christy McNichol. This was made in 1978, like I said, starring Christy McNichol and Esther Roll, who won an Emmy for her performance. Um, It's a bittersweet romance about a Jewish teenage girl in World War II who falls in love with a German prisoner of war that she finds hiding in her barn. So here's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is problematic. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And and we didn't stop to think of it as problematic, as we do with so many things from our childhood. And a friend of mine, Colleen, her 15-year-old daughter found out that how strongly I felt about Summer of My German Soldier, and she was horrified. She was very disappointed with me. <laughs> she was like, isn't she a feminist? She was so upset. And so my friend Colleen was like, well, he's not a Nazi Nazi. He's just a German soldier. And her daughter says, nice rationalizing mom. Tell that to a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> I, know, yeah. I know, but she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Notice that they didn't call it summer of my Nazi boyfriend. That's not. <laughs> there's a reason they didn't call it that. But nonetheless, I loved it. You are a Jew, little girl. I'm a soldier of the Third Reich. Christy McNichol is a Jewish girl who defies her family and country for a fleeing Nazi POW. I love you, Anton. They're the only good ones, a dead one, you know. An impossible love in a small Georgia town, summer of my German soldier. Uh, by the way, for those of you listening who also love Christy McNichol, our episode, it's uh, episode 21. So if you look at our archives, you can go back to 21. Okay, so also in our number eight spot is another one, Carolyn. One of my, again, all-time favorites, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. And this is a tearjerker for me. This movie aired on January 13th, 1974, and it starred Cicely Tyson as Miss Jane Pittman, a 110-year-old former slave who recounts her life story to a reporter. The movie's actually set in the early 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement, and I actually just rewatched the final scene yesterday, and I cried, where Miss Jane Pittman slowly walks to the top of the steps of City Hall, and it seems like the entire town is looking on. She passes police officers and city officials, and then bravely drinks from the Whites-only water fountain. Oh. <gasps> It's a powerful and emotional scene, and I know without a doubt that this movie was the first time I was really introduced to the subject of civil rights. And I remember having a discussion with my mom following the movie because I had no idea that there had been in two water fountains that uh, black people could not drink from the same water fountain. That just was beyond for me. And it has stuck with me, especially, again, in light of current events over um, the last few years, just hits me how far we maybe even haven't come Mm -hmm. from when that uh, movie and that um, incident took place. It was just super powerful. Not to mention 
the powerful performance at Cicely Tyson. It was a career maker for her, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, she'd been in a lot before, but she won an Emmy. That sh- that movie won 10 Emmy Awards. Oh, my God. Um, a lot for the visual effects because the um, the makeup that they did for Cicely Tyson, aging her from, um, like, basically a teenager, even though she was in her 40s, but they were able to do that all the way up to a 110-year-old woman. And it, I mean, they are close-ups on her, and it is real as all get out. So much so that as I grew up, and I was realizing Cicely Tyson was still alive, like she'd be at the, you know, Academy Awards or at the Emmy Awards presenting, and I'd be thinking, I knew she wasn't 110 in the She movie, looks great in real life, <laughs> but I certainly thought she was a lot older than she was, um, and that's how realistic her portrayal. So obviously the makeup is a big part, but so is her speech and her gait and the way she carries herself. It is phenomenal. And I that wow. scene, I mean, I cried. I cried last night, and all I had to do oh. was watch. It's, it's a long scene, like 10 minutes, barely any words in it. So powerful, super powerful. And the other movie that tied for number eight, which I'm going to talk to, um, talk about a little bit more after the episode, but it is called The Loneliest Runner. And I have so, so much to say about it. I don't so know if, if I'm, is this like a laughing or crying thing? I don't know. Okay. It's okay, a both sorry. thing. You yeah. can do mm-hmm. both because there's some funny-ish parts of it and there's some heartbreaking, sad parts. So if you are a Patreon member, you will get to hear all of our thoughts about this movie. Thank you. Can should we get a should we give them a one line about what the loneliest runner is? So I'm going to read it. Um, the so the loneliest runner is a sensitive drama about the misery and humiliation suffered by a teenage bedwetter, a talented athlete who subsequently becomes an Olympic star. Starring. <laughs> oh, you want me to go ahead with that too? Yes. Okay. Starring, everyone. Can it get any better than this? Lance Kerwin, Melissa Sue Anderson, Brian Keith, and Cameo by Michael Landon. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and Carol will be talking about it in an after the episode. Yes. Right. Oh, we're on Patreon. So if you want to mm-hmm. check that out, just go to patreon.com and you can see all the fun exclusive content um, and stuff from the cutting room floor that we often um, uh, post over there for our Patreon supporters. So um, our final entry in the number eight spot is Bill, which is a 1981 movie starring Mickey Rooney and Dennis Quaid. Mickey Rooney stars as a mentally challenged man who's been in an institution since he was seven years old, and they let him out in his 60s, and he is sort of discovered by Dennis Quaid, who takes him under his wing and lets him live with his family. And here's my thing with Bill. I have really happy memories of Bill. Why am I okay with Bill, but I'm not okay with Like Normal People, which is a movie that we referenced in our episode last week, which is a movie I cannot talk about. I can't do it. I'm too uncomfortable. Starring Sean Cassidy and Linda Pearl. I wonder if it's because you, um, you know, Sean Cassidy was your huge crush. So you had or you have a problem seeing Sean Cassidy portray um, someone, you know, that's challenged intellectually, but you didn't really, you know, um, Mickey Rooney, you, it was just an older man. So it wasn't like you had a connection to him maybe. So you didn't have maybe, a problem seeing him. Maybe so the cognitive dissonance know. wouldn't be it. So maybe. yes, Sean Cassidy, cognitive dissonance, Mickey Rooney, not so much cognitive <laughs> dissonance. It's still not appropriate for a nope. neurotypical person to play somebody with intellectual disabilities, but, um, 
the critics agreed that he did it masterfully. And they Mm -hmm. have said that in his almost 90 year career, I mean, it's a, he he started as a child actor. Remember they say that Bill is his most masterful performance ever. Wow. He won an Emmy for that. He did. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, um, the first bill was so successful, they kind of made a little fran- a bill franchise because then there was a second movie called Bill on His Own. And I have a little connection to that that I want to share with you guys. That's okay? where he gets his own apartment. Yes. And he's, yeah. yeah, living on his own. All right. So I want you guys to come with me back to my early dating days with Andy. And he'd asked me if I'd ever seen the Bill movies, like Bill or Bill on His Own. And Well, of course I had because I love a good TV movie. And he said, um, well, guess what? I'm in Bill on His Own. And so here we go. Um, They filmed part of Bill on His Own near the campus where we went to college. And they needed some extras for the movie. So he and a friend go over to the place where they're filming, and he's um, riding a bike in the background of one scene. But even more exciting for him. You guys get ready. He shared a lunch table with Helen Hunt. Yes, oh, Helen Hunt really? also stars in Bill on his own. And they had they oh broke God. for lunch. And I mean, it was a big, long lunch table. He said, don't get excited, Carolyn. It wasn't like, <laughs> you know, a four top. It was like a big cafeteria lunch table. But she sat down with the extras and he enjoyed lunch with Helen Hunt. Okay, so tied for number seven, we have two that scored high on my own list. And first is a PCPS favorite that, like we said last week, we talk more in depth about in episode two of the podcast. And that's House Without a Christmas Tree from 1972 um, that um, we said, like we said last week, starred Jason Robards, starred Lisa Lucas as Addie. Mildred Natwick was the grandma who we all adored. And of course, also at a tie for number seven is one we all remember. Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway from 1976, starring Eve Plum, Lee McCloskey, and Randall Kleiser. And I think you guys, I just rewatched it the other day, and I, I really think it all comes down to this. The reason this made an impression on me and is in my most memorable list is simple. It's Jan Brady turns to prostitution. That's it. <laughs> yes, the end. Totally. <laughs> end of story. Full right. stop. Right. Moving yep. on. Jan Brady like, is a hooker. Like, what? <laughs> what is right? What if nobody wants me? What if nobody wants me? <laughs> With your looks at your age? Come on. I'm scared. I didn't know I'd be alone. You're not. I'm here. Nobody's gonna hurt you. You want to swan's girls now. I was so I was so drawn to this movie like a like a moth to a flame. (laughs) Um, but just the fact that Jan Brady that's all I'm going to know her as. And that, and I feel, I'm sorry, Eve Plum. We do love you. And we know that you probably took this role. If you listen to part one of this, um, of the TV movie episode, you know that we talked a little bit about this. You probably wanted nothing more than to break out of your Jan Brady shell. But you guys, you can't not watch that. You can't yeah. turn away. Jan Brady yeah. turns to prostitution. And also, yeah. when I watched it again the other day, you guys, I forgot about this. She says right away, how old are you? I'm almost 15. It's not like she's playing 18. She's almost 15. And believe me, she gets a pimp. It's not like, but then surely she gets, she doesn't do it. Oh no. She turns tricks left and right. 
just talk about cognitive She's giving dissonance. him the money. Just seeing her in that out- outfit, just like the, you know, the ad for the movie and stuff. Uh, it just seemed like a girl playing bad dress up and it was just Jan Brady, you know, had been going through her mom's closet and I don't know, it just didn't work. Let's just say that movie doesn't hold up. Yeah. <laughs> So Don was so eyeball-worthy that it spawned a sequel in 1977 called Alexander, The Other Side of Don, in which <laughs> this is what they say. I'm not, I did not make this up. Somebody else wrote this. In which a country boy turned Hollywood hustler tries to find legitimate work in order to marry a teenage prostitute he had hoped to regenerate, but gets involved with a homosexual football pro instead. Gosh, that's a run-on sentence, I think. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and a must-watch. Like, look at that. Look, just that is crazy. My favorite is, but gets involved with a homosexual football pro instead. <laughs> like, they just tack that on to the end. Like, well, getting married to a, to a teenage prostitute he hoped to regenerate is not but, enough. Oh, my goodness. Oh, gosh. Well, Okay, Carolyn, you're up for the number six spot. Oh, this is a biggie a little, for you. Yes, it is. And a little palate cleanser from what we just had before. Okay, you guys, this is perhaps my favorite. One of the big reasons is it stars... Jimmy McNichol, or as he likes to be known in film, James Vincent McNichol. It aired on January 13th, 1979 on CBS. It's about a hockey player and his figure skating girlfriend. That's all I'm going to tell you because I can't believe this people, Michelle and Kristen have not seen it. (laughs) I know it's hard to believe. I don't know. They are so fortunate that I, and I'm holding it up now, I have purchased (laughs) A DVD copy. I'm not talking streaming, <laughs> you know. Oh my God. I'm not face. talking fuzzy YouTube oh. um, videos for us to watch. We're going to watch the real thing in Dolby Sound, probably. Um, look at him here. Look at that cutie patootie. I'm showing them how cutie looks on the back of the Champions of Love Story um, case. So get excited, everyone, because. We are having a watch party at Kristen's house. Michelle and Kristen mm-hmm. and I are gathering there, we and are. then we are going to record an episode that highlights our reactions to this wonderful okay, I can't wait. film. Well, and you know how much I love Ice Castle, so I'm like, I love anything mm-hmm. with the ice skating this and the, the teen romance. Than ice and, Castle. <gasps> wow, oh, those are some big words, Carolyn. Yes. Whoa. Uh, I challenge anyone to well we'll we'll see we'll see what these ladies think afterwards and it was number one on your personal top 10 right champions was your number one yes thank you and welcome to all of our new supporters on patreon this is an independently produced show written researched produced edited distributed and promoted by us carolyn Kristen, and michelle and paid for out of our own pockets because it's important to us But you can help us pay the bills by clicking the Patreon link on our website, poppreservationist.com, or by going to our link in bio on Instagram and finding the Patreon link in our link tree. It's one of the best ways for you to tell us that you like what you hear, so we can keep on trucking. Thank you, and enjoy the show. All right, at number five is a movie that we've talked about more than once in this season. Next Monday, she had everything. Drives me crazy. She never gave us a minute's trouble. I'm not going to eat that. Oh, yes, you are. If this is all my fault, I'd rather die. I did the best I could. I don't want to die. I can't stand to see my baby like this. I'll eat it. I'll gain weight. The best little girl in the world.
number five is a movie that was high on my list of most memorable. And it's the movie that I believe introduced me to anorexia. And that is The Best Little Girl in the World from 1981, which stars Jennifer Jason Lee. This is one year before she was in Fast Times at Richmond High, which is was kind of her big break type movie. But this movie, definitely people remember her in as oh, well. Mm-hmm. Um, it also also stars Charles Durning as her dad, Eva Marie Saint, and Melanie Mayron, who we all loved <gasps> as Melissa in 30-something. Oh, 30 and she's so young in this. Um, when I describe her character in a, in a minute, you might remember. So the tagline in the TV Guide advertisement is long, but this it's impactful. It's not funny, jokey, like the ones we read um, last week. It says, I'm Casey. I'm 17, getting all A's, and I just made cheerleader. My parents say I'm the best little girl in the world, but they just put me down and don't know I'm alive. Won't somebody please stop me before I starve myself to death? And then it says, a movie that just might save your child's life. And this is produced by Aaron Spelling, who is, you know, pretty much produced every single thing we ever watched Mm -hmm. in the 70s. Um, So like I said, this was my, I believe, my first real view of anorexia. Um, so I'm going to tell you just about a couple of the scenes that have stuck with me for decades. And those of you listening who also remember this movie, I bet you'll remember these scenes as well. The first one is when her parents find her stash of diet pills and they freak out and they force feed her. They literally hold her down at the table and force peanut butter Mm. on bread down her throat. And she goes crazy and she's twisting her head and they're freaking out and they're pushing the food down her throat basically. And then another one is when the first time she collapses, there'll be many, the first time she collapses and she's hospitalized and she calls them and she's crying and she calls and she's going, please, daddy, I want to come home. It's freezing here. I promise to eat dinner. I promise I'll be a good girl. I promise I'll be good. And it breaks your heart. And he actually does some tough love. He says, no, you can't. We can't, we can't come and get you. Mm-hmm. Melanie Mayron plays Carol. Oh, She's yeah. been in the treatment center. This is, I think, her fourth time. If you guys remember, she wears, you know, she has the hospital gown, but she wears a huge knitted scarf all the time because, you know, they're always cold. Right. Um, when I saw, I rewatched this again um, last week, and you guys, when Melanie Mayron walked in and that scarf, it was like I had that, that moment of, mm-hmm. oh my God, you know, the manalode <laughs> moment where my adult self was just, you know, coinciding with my young self. Then, um, so then later Carol and Casey become friends and you know where this is going. Cause I knew immediately when I saw Carol oh God, again, yes. I was like, I know how this ends. I remember now, um, Carol ODs and Casey watches them try to revive her. She's just standing in the doorway. Of course, no one says, get her back to her room. She watches them call her death. Um, so she freaks out because she had just been talking to Carol And she then pulls her feeding tube out of her jugular because she's like, I'm going to be just like her. And I just, oh, it's awful. And then it just kind of ends very abruptly. Um, Her psychologist is very caring. And kind of with the help of her caring psychologist, you kind of get the idea that she's going to be on this healing path um, because it ends with her and her psychologist sharing lunch together. And she's able to eat ice cream and have it touch her lips. The whole movie has has stayed with me. That's far more dramatic than, I I mean, I remember being, it's so impactful. And I read the book too. I know that I saw the movie first and I read the book second. And it was an awakening for me to be sure. I, those are traumatizing scenes. Well, they're scary. They're really traumatizing. Um, You know, it's sort of like scared straight, right? Did they do it well for 1981? I think they did. Um, I think that 
like I said, it wraps up pretty cleanly. Um, but mm-hmm. you definitely see, you see her in the, the family, the group therapy session with her family. And it's very real. It's stuck with a lot of people for decades. And mm-hmm. I bet for the same reason it's sticking with us, it scared us. It was yeah. scary mm-hmm. to see her. It was scary to see her pleading with her dad and scary to see her out of the care of her parents. And, you know, she wanted control, but she didn't want that, you know? Well, and think about the age at which we saw this. So many of these things are coming. The movies that are falling on our top 10 list are literal coming into our own. We're, we're 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. That's a time when we're being confronted with a lot of growing up things. Mm-hmm. And so that movie is hitting us. So I would have been 12 um, yeah. at the time. Right. It was a topic. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think when we, in a future episode, look at Seventeen Magazine and some of the mm-hmm. magazines that we are reading, this it was being addressed. Let's just go further down into this deep dark hole with our number four spot, <laughs> Michelle. Yeah, and you guys, oh. I this was I have feelings, all caps, about this one. This is my number one most memorable made-for-TV movie, and it's for a multitude of reasons. So this is There's Something About Amelia from 1984. Again, no funny tagline. The tagline or the logline is, on Monday morning, 13-year-old Amelia Bennett told her school counselor that her father had repeatedly had sexual relations with her. This movie tells the story of the Bennett family and their shattering crisis. It is the kind of story that is happening to families all over America. This movie stars Ted Danson as the father, Glenn Close as the mother, and Roxana Zoll as Amelia. It received eight Emmy nominations, and it won for Outstanding Drama Comedy Special, like one category, obviously drama. Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series, Roxana Zoll, who played Amelia, won that, and it won for Outstanding Writing. Um, this There's Something About Amelia was produced by Leonard Goldberg, who we've talked about before on the podcast. He produced Family, Charlie's Angels, Starsky and Hutch, among others. And he calls this movie one of the highlights of my career. He says they made sure it was done very tastefully, but he really wanted to get an American hero like the everyman to play the dad. So they got Ted Danson, who was very hot right then, in Cheers. Um, he said it was very important that they get somebody that people would say, oh my God, if he did it, anybody could do it. Um, and Goldberg is adamant that the script is wonderful. You guys, okay. I disagree. This is where I'm going to come in. I disagree. I don't remember this movie making me mad when I was a kid, but rewatching it recently as a mother, and I think just as a human being, I am furious. Amelia gets sent to the home for abused children, and Gail, that's the mom's name is Gail, she finally believes Amelia, but not until much, much later. And when she does, she yells at her, yells at her this, why did you let him do it? Why didn't you stop this to Amelia? And then at one point, Gail, the mom, actually tells the therapist that she has to see that she's jealous of her 13-year-old daughter because we've seen some scenes already from by Gail. She wants to have sex with him like at the beginning of the movie, and he doesn't want to. He's like, no, no, no. Like, oh, I'm tired or whatever. That's part of the storyline. That is not But she tells him that she's jealous of her 13-year-old daughter. So I don't know if that's that that's a truth they were just trying to that show. That sounds contrived, doesn't um, it? Right. I, th- I, I, yeah. I think so. I feel like I that didn't need so, to be in there. But, um, like they had to figure out some way to justify the mother's um, rage 
Well, when in actuality, you can find all sorts of psychological reasons for it. I don't think it's that. So the family therapist that Gail has to see tells her that everyone thinks about incest and that these men do it because basically they're not getting what they need out of their marriages. <gasps> so in essence, he gives Stephen an excuse, I felt. What? What? Not, he's Ugh. not saying to Gail, your husband has a sickness and needs to be locked up because what he did is a crime, maybe. It's more like the therapist is saying to the mom, he needed love and affection from somebody, right? Oh my God. Yikes. As and if they had no consultant on the film whatsoever. Right. Well, the real kick in the nuts is this. Stephen goes to jail, obviously. I'm just kidding. He does not go to jail. Oh, no. The man just has to go to therapy a few times. No jail for raping his 13-year-old daughter for years. Um, so he just has to go to therapy. And then Gail, the mom, decides to stay with the dad. And then, then at the end, Amelia comes to terms with everything and forgives her father. Nope. Nope. Oh. That's not Okay. I mean, I'm not a therapist, and maybe forgiveness is an important part of her moving on, but I'm guessing that it doesn't have to be like, let's go to the daddy-daughter dance. But what I hated is the way they made the message of this movie, if you're a child and you're being molested and you tell, one, your mom won't be believe you, right. and she's going to be really mad at you, and yep. your mm -hmm. molester will probably, possibly be invited to move back in with you. So why would kids tell? So this is right. an example of where you're doing more damage than you are helping, right? Yes, you might be calling attention to an issue, but think of the people who were harmed by that movie, right. by those portrayals. But listen to this. They put a hotline number at the end of the movie. And Goldberg said the experts told them that no one would call after the movie was over because, you know, it was nighttime and the kids were home with their abuser, probably getting abused. But he checked at about 3 p.m. the next day after school, right after school hours. And in just one city alone, there were already seven calls and three kids had been removed from the home. Oh so regardless God. of maybe of what I think of it and what we yeah. all now think of it, it was an important movie. And made a difference mm -hmm. to some children. Plus, it won three Emmys, and one of them was for writing. God, I can't even believe it. Mm -mm. Okay, need a palate cleanser? <laughs> Please. <laughs> That's We've been down, down, way down deep for a long time. Let's pull up. Let's pull up, and we're going to look at our number three movie. Whew, deep breath. At number three, thank God, is a movie <laughs> that is so memorable that we devoted an entire episode to it in season two. Was it season mm -hmm. two? I think mm -hmm. it was. And that is Sooner or Later. I'm not sure palate cleanser is the exact right way to oh, describe God. it. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Okay, because on the one hand, this is a teen romance right. that stole all of our hearts. And we, for not one second, were traumatized by it. At all, we wanted to be, well, okay, let's go backwards, starring Rex Smith and that girl from Fish. We all <laughs> wanted to be that girl from Fish, who is a 13-year-old pretending to be a 16-year-old so her 24-year-old guitar teacher will fall in love with her, which he does. <laughs> so, on the one hand, we thought it was lovely, but as adults, we're like, no, 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 stop, 
now. Stop now. That's well, breaking the law. Well, especially because we found out that in real life, she really was like 14 or something. Yes, and he, and was he really like, was like 24. He was married. We know he was married. He was so married. let's just say he was of age yeah. to be married. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but please it, go back and listen to episode 30. It's a great episode. Yes, it's really good. And it is the impact of Sooner or Later was so huge because Rex Smith went from somebody that nobody ever heard of before. And the next day he was mobbed in a department store while he was trying to buy a shirt. And he's like, uh, do you have to get the cops to get me out of here? Overnight, everyone was in love with, with Rex Smith. Yeah. And you, you know what? You take uh, my breath away. Oh yes. And people also need to watch the very fun video of the Christmas or birthday present oh, we yes. got for Kristen when Rex actually sings that exact song. <laughs> To Kristen, and it says her name in it. But what? Blows, and I cried. So and it's I cried. literally and she like cried. it's very you, sweet. Kristen, you take my breath away. <laughs> Don't know what to say, Kristen. Kristen, because you take my breath away. And man, he wails on the high note still. He really The best does. is that he's singing to his own song. He's singing to his own track. Like, like a little karaoke track of his yes. own. Yeah. Of his yes. own song. But it, it was so sweet. Her, Kristen, your reaction just. Was priceless. I loved it. But that I was do, that was a Husker do moment for sure. I want to just um, recall the fact that the writers of this um, teleplay and then in turn a little novel that came after Bruce and Carol Hart to again cognitive dissonance that they were a big part of free to be you and me. It just yes. rocks my world. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, how. Do those two go together, except for the fact that they really knew what would reach like these particular youthful age groups. I mean, they knew right. what would grab our attention and free to be you and me. And goodness and knows. It did. They Everything got it. Everything right. that they did, we didn't know who these people were, but nope. whatever they had their hands in, we it was a cultural moment yes. for all of us. Free to be you and me, cultural moment. Sooner or later, cultural totally. moment. Totally. We were all in. It's a great way to describe it. And you take my breath away. Okay, are you ready for the number two spot? We're getting closer to our number one, you guys. Number two is a biggie. And I thought it was possible that this would be our number one. Carolyn, tell us about the movie in our number two spot. Okay, I'm going to try to tell you because I'm really not sure I'm going to be able to do this without tearing up. Oh, God. I know. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, and our number two spot is Brian's song. This is a TV movie. It's from 1971. So I'm sure all of us watched it, maybe not in 1971, but several times after. It um, by is considered by many TV critics to be one of the greatest TV movies of all time. It was so good that it was actually the only TV movie that was then made into a motion picture and sent to the theaters. It tells the story of the friendship between Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers two players on the Chicago Bears in the late 1960s. They actually made NFL history as the first interracial roommates on an NFL team. Their friendship deepens after Brian Piccolo is diagnosed with terminal cancer. When Gail Sayers is honored with the NFL's George S. Hallis Most Courageous Award, he dedicates his award to Piccolo. Telling the crowd that they had selected the wrong person for the prize and saying this line, And I'm going to try not to cry when I say it, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd like all of you to love him, too. I love Brian Piccolo. 
And I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. You guys, I remember crying so, so hard in that movie. Um, like the kind where you can't catch your breath, you're hyperventilating. Into this day, when I hear that theme, I'll, I can cry again. And another time that I bonded with my dad over a movie. I am so grateful, you guys, for this podcast because I feel closer to my dad than times when I think he was actually here. Um, I just remember talking about this movie and I um, went through a spell in school where I didn't like going to school and I would just not want to go and I'd cry and he'd say, Carolyn, you know that movie Brian's song? You know, Gail Sayers, he threw up before every Chicago Bears football game. That's how nervous he was to do what he did, but he got through it, he did it, and he did it well. And so this movie, it's just so many levels for me, but Golly jeepers! I hope both of you have seen it. All I need to do is hear the song. I yeah, just I don't, the song. I don't know that I'd watch it just because yes. I don't like uh-huh. movies that are that sad like that. Well, I don't. That's like why I where... didn't rewatch it. Um, mm-hmm. And it was hard for me to. And I didn't even watch any scenes. It was just reading that last line. That was like oh looking God. at the Wikipedia stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember him. I remember him at that podium getting the award, and the room is silent. And this is. Um, Gosh, powerful on so many levels because, yes, it's this, um, you know, someone is young and they're dying and this friendship. But it was a friendship between two men, which wasn't usually portrayed. Um, and it's an interracial friendship, which at that time, in a true story, this this was a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. It's considered one of the best, if there's a best, um, kind of man cry movies that oh, oh men, yes, that's yeah. right. I mean, when there you are, think where about men that, are allowed to cry. At exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The characters cry and yeah. the viewers are allowed to, you know, they can't help but cry. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so, so good. And um, it, it will stick with me forever. The, the music sticks with me. Um, and a fun fact on a lighter note, I remember the first time I watched it kind of freaking out a little bit because um, there's a scene where it's Gale Sayers at home and his home is the actual same set from Bewitched. He has Bewitched's oh, home, really? my favorite house. So it was just like, what? It's too many things for Carolyn. <laughs> it was. It was. But um, gosh, yes. Yeah, so that is my, um, I guess, after Champions. Most of my favorite TV movies or most memorable are tearjerkers. I can honestly say if <laughs> we go through, I mean, Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, The Loneliest Runner had me crying. They were not, um, not for the faint of heart. I really mm-hmm. liked to cry i guess carolyn i am so glad to be on this journey with you we've we have learned so much about your dad we've learned so <laughs> much about your relationship with your dad mm-hmm. just because we bring up silly things and the silly things relate to uh, the people that we love it's just so funny and um yeah i just i'm so grateful so thank you guys so this is one reason Our for pleasure. nostalgia right it helps mm-hmm. keep us connected to the people we love most definitely most definitely Okay, are you guys ready for the number one? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. And finally, the made-for-TV movie that is considered the most memorable of all by the good people of the Pop Culture Preservation Society. And it wasn't even close, you guys. Not even <laughs> close. This was a landslide win. The number one most memorable TV movie of our Gen X youth is 
the boy in the plastic bubble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Not even close. This is the 1976 movie starring our favorite sweat hog, Vinnie Barbarino. It was the first time we had seen Vinnie Barbarino as anything other than a sweat hog. And I think this is the beginning of his heartthrob status, much like Rex Smith. He Rex Smith had a sooner or later moment and... Of course, people loved Vinnie Barbarino. We thought he was cute, and we thought he was funny. But when he was in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, we saw him in a much different light, and we fell in love. It was totally different. So Boy in the Plastic Bubble is a fictionalized true story, true but fictionalized story, of a boy born without an immune system who lives his life in a hermetically sealed plastic bubble inside his house with rooms kind of connected by these clear plastic tunnels. So it's like he lives in a habit trail. I was about to say it's a habit trail. It's just like a habit trail. Yes. And he actually has a habit trail in his habit trail. He has like a sanitized pet mouse in his sanitized habit trail in his habit trail. Oh, but what happens when the boy who can't go outside falls in love with the girl next door? And then this becomes a love story. No different from any other love story in which there's something that keeps the young lovers apart, right? Like think about West Side Story or Love Story. The thing keeping these people apart is plastic. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like saran wrap. It's kind of like saran wrap. So they hold hands through plastic. They kiss through plastic. It's got everything for the perfect preteen romance. It's got teenagers. It's got dune buggies. It's got beach parties. It's got horses. And it's got John Travolta kissing through plastic. I mean, it was made for us, for sure. This also stars Mike Brady, a.k.a. What is his name? Robert Reed? Robert Reed. <laughs> yeah, Robert Reed. Robert Reed. Nope. Um, as John Travolta's dad. And Diana Highland as his mom. This is where John Travolta and Diane Highland meet and become boyfriend and girlfriend, a very public couple. And in the very first scene of the movie is when the doctor drives over to their house, which is, I don't know why the doctor drives over to tell her that she's pregnant, but that's what happens. He drives like, hey, guess (laughs) what? You're pregnant. Doctors were super nice back then. They were so much nicer. (laughs) And I can't, so when she learns that she's pregnant, what what I think in my mind is she's pregnant with her boyfriend. Oh. (laughs) Right? Wait. Now you think that. You didn't know that then. No. Oh, my God. No. No. I did not know that at the time. I'm just thinking that now when I watch it. Because I watched it again yesterday. And this is a worthy rewatch. I'm watching this and and I've been making fun of this movie. I mean, the premise is really quite funny. He lives in a a habit trail. But I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, my God. This is good. This is a good movie. Did you watch it on Amazon? Because I saw that it's free with ads on Amazon. Or do you own I it? I didn't. I watched it on Tubi, but it is also oh, available okay. on Amazon. This is good, and it's heartbreaking. And the success of this movie is all about John Travolta. He gets all the credit for this movie. Because let's face it, the premise is kooky. But his ability to manage nuanced, vulnerable, complex emotions on the screen while in a plastic box is it's unbelievable. It's we talked about this in our Saturday night live episode as well, too, that no matter what the character is, he is able to bring something to it that raises it up a level. And he made everyone fall in love with him as a result. And Mm -hmm. it's so sad. It's heartbreaking. I can't believe that this boy in the plastic bubble. (laughs) I mean, I 
that literally could make me cry, but it did. However, there are a couple of points that kind of make it veer into the ridiculous that John Travolta can't do anything about. Most notably, the suit that they make for him so that he can go to school for the first time safely. It's it's a bubble suit. They make him a bubble suit. And for some reason, they decide to make this bubble suit out of orange fur. So it looks like a gorilla suit. I mean, they could have made it like a space suit. Right. They could have made it white and sort of space age. But he looks like he's from, like he's on the banana splits. <laughs> yeah. He's on Planet of the Apes. Totally. And they're, and not only do they put him in this outfit, but then they put that outfit in circumstances that are just beyond. <laughs> so you have John Travolta running on the beach with his crush, <laughs> flying a kite in a gorilla suit. It's horrible. But the worst, this is the very worst, on graduation day. And everybody's standing there in their cap and gown. And where is John Travolta? And I'm like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And here comes John Travolta in the gorilla suit. And they've stuffed a a graduation gown over the gorilla suit. And they, like, tape a graduation cap on top of his gorilla head. The mortar board's, like, balancing. so bad. It's so bad. You guys, I thought we were going to do a watch party sometime about that movie. That would be fun. We have to. We have to. Because it's, I really recommend people watching it just to see his performance. It's pretty amazing. And the last scene is legendary. This Spoiler alert. If you don't, if you plan on watching this and you don't know what happens at the end and you don't want it to be spoiled, please pause and just fast forward 10 seconds or something. Because the last scene is so legendary. When John Travolta decides that he would rather die and be with his his girlfriend than live in a plastic bubble, and he steps across the yellow line where the germs are, and he walks outside, and he touches the leaves on the trees, and he feels the grass under his feet, and he sees Glynis, the love interest, over grooming her horse. There are horses, you guys! And he walks over in his bare feet, and she turns around, and he reaches out, and he touches her face, and he says, it's so soft. It's softer than I ever imagined it would be. And then they get on the horse, and they gallop away into the sunset while Paul Williams sings this very 70s love song about leaving us alone. Leave us alone, we live in the country. Leave us alone, we'd make it just fine. Happy in a one-room shack, and we'd not look back. And then you just cry. So that concludes our countdown of the 10 most memorable made-for-TV movies of the Gen X era. If you're anything like us, you're frantically Googling right now so you can revisit that moment that you fell in love with John Travolta in that plastic bubble. If you want to immerse yourself in Gen X culture, the moments of your past, trust me, made-for-TV movies are the perfect way to do it. Thanks for listening today, and please let us know what movie this episode inspired you to watch tonight. Thanks for being with us today, you guys. And you must join us next week because we will be recording our thoughts immediately following a viewing of my all-time number one made-for-TV movie starring James Vincent McNichol, Champions, A Love Story. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't wait. I'm bringing snacks. Oh, um, I'll bring the snacks. Just bring oh, yourself. Okay. <laughs> They'll some, probably be some themed. Kleenex. Bring yourself. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, I might wear my ice skating dress. Um, okay. okay. And now is the most important part of the episode. So don't shut us off uh, because it's where we get to thank you. Yes, you and you and you. Thank you all for supporting us by listening and by sharing our podcast with others and also for leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts because for some reason that's the only place you can. And by clicking those five stars, we know those things might seem trivial, but they only take a minute and honestly help us so much. And a huge thank you to those of you who take your support to the next level, our Patreon patrons. Today, we are thanking Erica, Jackson, Jennifer, Lisa, and Natalie for quite honestly keeping this podcast trucking. If you want to check out all the fun, exclusive content our patrons get for supporting us, just go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and put Pop Culture Preservation Society right up in the search bubble. Or check out our clickable links on our website, poppreservationists.com, or in the link tree link in our bio, or in our show notes. Oh my God, you guys, there's so many places you really, you have to click, <laughs> right? You can't not click. Click, click, click. <laughs> in the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast. Courtesy of Jack Tripper and the gang at the Regal Beagle, two good times. Two happy days. Two little house on the prairie. Cheers. Cheers. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Get a happy feeling when we're singing